I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Welcome back, Katie. Do you want to tell everybody what just happened? I feel like you should tell everybody what just happened. No, let's hear it from your perspective, because what happened on your end? Okay, so we're we're happily recording our episode. We are 48 minutes into just like solid gold content. And then Katie gets a look on her face. She like looks down at the screen. She's like, oh, no, I think my audacity stopped recording and then blacks out disappears no idea where she's gone <laughs> and i got eaten single text eaten message by a black hole and i was like cool so my computer decided to restart and upload or like uh download all of its up updates or whatever software updates that apparently it needed to do right then and in the but middle of the episode it didn't it didn't like cut through the facetime it didn't cut through the google to be like, hey, we're gonna sh- we're gonna shut it down. Are you cool with that? None of that happened because it was just Michael on my screen talking to me about what you're gonna hear later. Um, so I'm about to tell you the story of this lady, and Michael heard it not an hour ago, and Frankie's agitated at me because she wants me to stop talking in general. Um, which I get it. You keep me humble. Thank you for that. But like, I gotta get this work done. Um, because I did my research. I'm going to try not to do the Cliff Notes version. I'm going to try and be just as fascinating. Maybe if you down that wine super fast, then it'll be equally entertaining as it was 20 minutes ago. I will do my best to pretend like I know none of what you're about to <laughs> yeah, tell me. Like, really? One of those? I'll try to like ask leading questions without it practice, being very clear <laughs> that I know exactly where to go. Time to practice your acting skills, going. which you'll be in good company with my lady this week, Myrna Loy. Okay, I'm going to make oh. sure I click on the right stuff so that I don't screw this recording up. What this really tells me in general is that we all need to be in the same room so that I don't screw it up. Because that's what I'm learning. Um, okay. Myrna Loy was born Myrna Williams in 1905 in Montana. I said, <laughs> exclamation point Montana. Hey, Montana. Um, yay. So she was around then or when Jeanette Rankin was rolling around. Uh, her dad did a bunch of stuff. Per usual with Montana stereotypes, he was a rancher, because I don't think you'd be out there without ranching it up. Uh, he had a bunch of other jobs. Banker, real estate tycoon, uh, oh, farmland fancy. farmland appraiser. I don't know what that means. Um, and he was elected. He's one of the youngest electees to the Montana legislature. The words legislature and legislator are my least favorite things to say. I gotta figure out. He's a politician. Uh, He was super young when he was elected. And her mom had a musical background. And so Myrna would end up doing some dance later on. That'll come into play in a second. Um, 1912. Her mom is super sick. She gets what no one wants to get in the winter in Montana. She gets pneumonia. And her dad is like, nope, we're not doing this. Let's go to California with our kid so that you can get the nice warm weather and the good vapors or whatever. Can confirm. Winters in Montana suck. Yeah, not a great place to be. Um, I mean, it's nice inside. 
But when you're a rancher and there's no, like, central heating, probably not great. Um, and I don't think, like, cabin smoke is what you want to really cure your lung disease. You know, no. not great. So they go to California for, like, the vapors or whatever they prescribe for pneumonia at that time. Um, his wife is like, oh, my gosh, it's sunny and there's a beach and everyone wants to live here. This is a really nice place to live. Let's buy some real estate. Dad is like, uh, okay, fine. Ends up working out because they end up staying there for a while because mom stays sick. Or maybe she's faking, but I think she was actually <laughs> sick because she does get a hysterectomy at some point. Um, which, Oof. sign me up for turn of the century surgery. I bet it was a hoot. Um, she's pretty ill. She gets a hysterectomy. Dad buys land. Uh, uh, they're living in California. Um, 1918 rolls around. What happens in 1918, Michael? Is it? Do you remember from 20 minutes ago? World War One related or Spanish flu related? The flu happens. Yeah, bad stuff. Watch season two of Downton Abbey. Some bad stuff happens. Uh, coincidentally, <laughs> mom's fine. Dad dies. Tragic. The Spanish flu. So poor little Myrna and mom are left to shift for themselves. And so um, uh, Myrna starts taking dance classes because her mom's super musical. She's like, oh, we could get we could get some money that way. She does pretty good. She gets seen by some folks. Um, Hollywood is just starting to take shape. And so Myrna would be how old at this point? Honestly, uh, she's in school. And then the the, the next age I have her doing stuff is at 18. So appropriate. She's probably a teenager dancing in the clubs and stuff. Nothing like seedy from what I saw. She didn't write Mm -hmm. about anything untoward. But she probably wasn't, you know, legal. Um... (laughs) But it, the next thing I have for her is at 18, she uh, gets work at the Egyptian Theater, where mm-hmm. she performs in musical sequences, which I don't know what that means. Um, oh, that were related to and served as prologues for the feature film. How about that? A little floor show before your movie. I had no idea that was a How thing. Fun. Um, she starts to learn some acting techniques by osmosis by watching so many movies and watching theater and stuff. And she's like, Oh, I could do that. I'd be fine with that. Yeah. Apparently who needed to go to school for that? Myrna didn't. She had the gift. Uh, what happens? She gets hired as an extra on some movies. She meets her good, uh, will eventually become her very dear friend, Joan Crawford at this time. Super um, they actually remain friends for the rest of their lives. And Myrna Loy didn't like Christina's uh, biography about Joan Crawford called Mommy Dearest. She thought it was all hogwash. So Fascinating. <laughs> Something I didn't tell you last time. Um, <laughs> let's see. She's a chorus girl. She's done some dance. Um, so at some point she is posing for a sculpture. That gets put up in a park at some point, and people are like, oh, what a cute girl. She looks amazing. Uh, at the same time, she gets some photos taken of herself, and Rudolph Valentino sees them, and he's like, she's got it. I like her. Let's bring her in for a screen test, or however you talked in the 20s. She has a, what did I, a, I clearly copied and pasted this, a small but showy role opposite Nita Naldi and What Price? Beauty? It was shot in 1925. It did not come out for three years, but the stills of her in her makeup made uh, 
it got into a magazine and all of a sudden a lot of the studios were like, oh, she's got it. I love this exotic dame that's actually from Montana and Welsh. So she's not that weird, but we're going to think she's weird because we're the 20s and we're screwed up <laughs> in terms of social awareness. Um, but you know what? You know what doesn't sell? Williams. We don't like Myrna Williams. That's too American. So we're going to call you something different. And she's like... She's like, what, though? What are you going to call me? Because I want to say it in my own name. And they're like, we're going to call you Myrna Lisa. And she's like, that sounds like garbage. I would rather you didn't. And so somebody else says Loy, L-O-Y. <laughs> Myrna Lisa would be so bad. No. She's just not. No. It's, just, it's not good. So she she goes with Loy. It works out. She practiced signing it on the back of a photo. And she's like, yeah, I could sign it. It's short. I like it. Let's do this. Um... So that becomes her stage name. All of a sudden, she gets contracted as soon as she has a name. So go figure. You have to be able to sign it. Uh, she gets cast in a production of Ben-Hur in 1925. Um, Ben-Hur, let's talk about it another time, but that is a weird story. It was like this really popular fictional novel after the Civil War, and it became like pop culture phenomenon. Like they sold a ton of Ben-Hur merchandise in like the early Sears catalog days. Anyway, it's it's a crazy. It's like the Star Wars of its time. It's bizarre, but it has this whole like Judeo-Christian thing. <laughs> what? I digress. I'm trying to find stuff I didn't talk about last time <laughs> to be fun. Okay, so the makeup in the pictures from what price? Beauty <laughs> made her um get typecast as this like vampy femme fatale evil lady. Coincidentally, the vampy femme fatale evil ladies were also um, people of color at the time. Not described as people of color at that time. They were called exotic, different gals with dark hair and makeup and ethnically ambiguous. uh, Not full-on blackface, but definitely some tints of yellow that made it super problematic to look at it now. Oh, boy. Not good at all, no. Um... But she was getting cast a lot. She was like, oh, I'm making money for my mom. This is, you know, this is working out. Maybe I'm not. Whatever. This is a trifle. Let's keep going. Um, Coincidentally, in the late 20s, early 30s, she kind of fits the aesthetic of the day. Like, she's got this really slim, interesting shape to her. She wears all the clothes of the time really well. Her face is really interesting. Her eyes are huge, which back then, that's basically all you paid a woman for. Greta Garbo, Betty Davis, Myrna Lloyd, Giant Eyes wide set uh look very odd compared to like today's standards um but she's just killing it in the late 20s and then in the 30s she she really like comes into her own right so she kind of takes all of this goodwill that she's accrued and she uh gets cast in what will become like one of her famous roles which is the thin man have you seen the thin man i have not seen the thin man you're gonna see the thin man because it's super cute um, the list. She plays Nora Charles, wife to Nick Charles, who's like, I think a private investigator, if not very perceptive guy, because he solves mysteries, and that's the whole gimmick of the movies, of which they make several. Um, but the first one is kind of like a revelation, because they're a really cute couple, they are trendy and cool, they're drinking, uh, it's post-prohibition, so... Um, people are just starting to like drink legally again. Um, and that's a big take of their early marriage is how boozy they get. Um, there's a lot of him <laughs> being hung over and it's quite funny. And then, uh, oh, 
she's cast opposite William Powell. Did I say William Powell? She's cast opposite him. He's mm-hmm. great. He's worth a view. But both of them are very interesting. It's 1934, which you would think is like, they gotta talk like this. And, blah, 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 blah. and maybe they do, but to my ear, watching a lot of those movies, how, I think How are they really, gonna really... talk, Katie? <laughs> you know, the quick talking, blah, 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 really fake radio drama kind of stuff. They don't mm. do that, though. Maybe they do to somebody else, but to my ear, they don't. Um, they're very natural. They're very interesting. They're very sharp. The writing's really good, but they're also, like, really natural together. Okay, Thin Man does amazing. Giant film. Huge, famous. Um, they're both pretty big stars at that time, but it really catapults her into, like, oh, she's not this villainous gypsy woman that we decided she was for ten years. She's now this, like, all-American, really chic, but, like, amazing wife character. But, like, holds her own in all the scenes, has agency, has has a brain um, radical notion. It's sort of this kind of very interesting dynamic of a 1930s woman. She's not full yeah. mother yet. You know, she still has a lot of like the fun stuff of the twenties in, in her. Anyway, she, uh, also gets to like show her comedic timing at this time. And it's good. She's just as good as anybody else in the movie. Um, and she gets her own bits and she plays off of William Powell really well, who was by far the like bigger star at the time. Um, She's pretty mature at this point, and due to her being uh, so long in the business and being there from the very start, from living in California as Hollywood took shape, she sort of uh, got to come up with all of the people that started to be the power brokers in the 30s. So she knew Hmm. the right people. She worked really hard, and her work ethic was seen by all the people, so she starts to work with all the big names of the time. And her co-stars work with her multiple times, they say great things about her. From what I could tell, she didn't really, like, get into the drama. She didn't have a lot of, like, crazy affairs with her co-stars or whatever. She had affairs and stuff, but they weren't with her co-stars. So, like, there's a real... <laughs> from what I could tell, like, there's a real camaraderie across her um, profession with how they treated her as a, a co-star. And it's very much a co-star rather than, like, my leading lady. You know what I mean? Because she definitely, like, moved around guy to guy. Like, she did Spence Tracy and Clark Gable and Cary Grant. And, like, they all seemed to really get along well with her. Um, which I think says a lot about a person. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 She, uh, was always self-described as quite outspoken. Um, she speaks out against Hitler. Her movies coincidentally, or consequently, get banned in Germany at the time of Hitler coming to power, which she's like, great, didn't want you to watch him anyway because you're a pig, because I hate you, because Nazis are terrible. Does everyone know this? Nazis are terrible. They will always be terrible. They can't change the brand. It's pretty bad. So, she's outspoken on that. She's um, making... She's in the top ten of money-making stars in the late 30s. So she's clearly, like, rubbing elbows with the right people, making the right choices with her career, and then able to, with that kind of safety net, say what she needs to say. And in my opinion, she's on the side of right in most of what she has to say. For example, while working at MGM, she would speak about the racist casting hierarchy that existed and the fact that Mm -hmm. she was like, why do all the black people have to play servants? And... The quote is, how about a black person walks into a courthouse carrying a briefcase? What's so wrong with that? Like, 
she's out there saying those things and is on record. Great questions. Talking, taking to task, you know, the, the policies that she was participating in. So good for her. And as I said in the last time I recorded this... <laughs> Anytime that somebody likes to tell you, like, oh, but everybody thought that way. Like, that's how it was back then. Clearly not, because Myrna Loy had a different opinion, so I bet she wasn't alone. So if she knew it was bad, then you all knew it was freaking bad, and you just didn't do anything about it. Um, righteous rage. Okay. Yes. So she helps the war effort. She... She helps run um, canteen and like fundraises and uh, participates in the war effort in as much as Hollywood did at that time. Um, she marries a man who serves in World War II. And then after World War II, she makes the other best film of her career, in my opinion Thin Man and this mm. one. And yes, she plays a wife in both, but she's pretty great. So this movie is called The Best Years of Our Lives. Have you seen it? Also not seen it. I know the answer. No, you haven't. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> Pretend like you haven't heard anything. Because it's a great movie. Best Years of Our Lives is a movie about three different servicemen who are coming home immediately after World War II. And it's released in 1946, which means it's made pretty much 1945 to 46. So it is immediately following. And it is telling the story of men coming home from war, from that war. Like, it's not a fictionalized version. They are coming home from World War II. Um, it's three different men's experiences, and then their families' experiences with them coming home. So, there's an older family, or an older married couple. Not old, just older. They have, like, teenage, 20-year-old children. Um... And their marriage was more established when he left, and now he's back, and they have to kind of rediscover each other. And then there's a middle couple who got married right when the war broke out, and they didn't really get to know each other, and now they're coming back and being like, or was this the right idea? I don't know. And then you have the hmm. youngest guy who is still living at home, and he has returned with an injury that causes his life to have to readjust to dealing with um, his new physical body. That has been affected most um, outwardly by the war. The other men are dealing with more internal stuff. And that is what I found so fascinating about this movie is that I watched it. I don't know, in the last 20 years I've watched it. And um, they're dealing with stuff that I would say still affects soldiers and soldiers' families today. And um, they, they don't have the right words, but they talk about the same things. In the, uh, 1946 really Lens. So they talk, or they show what I consider PTSD. They talk about the the difficulty in reacclimating and what it's like and how you kind of see it rather than talk about it in the movie. So, like, mm -hmm. they get home and then all they want to do is actually go meet back up with their buddies and talk about the war because that's how they know themselves now. So they have to, like, go back and find their group and there's comfort there instead of at home and there's a lot of like working through things and you see three different people attack their problems very differently and like what supports there and what's not and it's very fascinating and it it I wouldn't think without having seen this movie I wouldn't have thought they would have made this movie in 1946 if that makes sense it seems yeah too, no, I'm kind of shocked that they did it seems too on point and it seems, and it's very sad and kind of eerie how how easy it is to 
accept and understand now because it's the Mm -hmm. same so much of it is the same or like identifiable with today's modern understanding of it um it's really great. You should watch it. The youngest veteran in it is played by, I believe, a real war veteran who had um, this kind of injury happen to him. Uh, That's incredible. So he's not an actor, but he does a really great job. And his storyline is so sweet and beautiful and just great. And he's like, there is an element of propaganda to the film of like, he has a girlfriend who lives next door named Wilma and like, they're pretty great and Wilma wants to stay together and he's like you won't love me anymore anyway it's pretty cute um it's great you just watch it it's so good uh anyway Myrna Loy in this movie specifically is playing the um older couple the wife in that group and so she has all of this really good unspoken physical stuff that happens so like she has to, she's like, her husband has just slept in, so she's bringing him breakfast in bed, and you can tell, like, she's like, I I don't know if he likes eggs, in, like, I don't know. There's a whole thing happening without her speaking mm-hmm. of, like, I don't know how to do this, and this is weird, and, but I love you, but this is weird. Anyway, it's really great. She's really subtle. She's really s- superb, and she does a thing which I think doesn't get a lot of credit, which is that she stands back and lets other people take focus. But she has a point of view the whole time. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. She's just such a good team player in all her movies. Um, Very cool. Throughout the 40s, she plays Nora Charles 14 times. They do, uh, over 10 years, they make the Thin Man movies. They're finding a lot of crime. Um, <laughs> they get along super well. They always have a great working relationship and... The, the trajectory of their marriage over time is really fascinating. Did I talk about this this time? That I can't remember. I'm going to say it, and Jen, you can cut it if it's if I'm repeating myself. But um, she said later in an interview that I watched that at this time, when she was making the Thin Man movies, like they didn't necessarily show a happy marriage just existing on screen. Like, the storyline of these movies is not their marriage. It's them, like, solving a crime or whatever. They're just having... They just happen to be married. Whereas in other movies, she was like... At the time, it always felt like you would you would end when they got married. You would end the movie. It would be about them getting to that point. And then you would... And then they got married and everything, everything was fine. And it wasn't... There wasn't anything after that. So she sort of really liked that aspect of her uh, career. Let's see. While in acting, she also did some other stuff. What did she do? She was the first member of Hollywood to join UNESCO. Mm. Am I saying that right? Yeah. United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. That's really cool. And then she also participates in an advisory committee against discrimination in housing because she puts her money where her mouth is and she cares about people in her later life she goes back to the theater and she learns i mean she had history of being on stage but it was a good 30 years 25 years before she went back on stage in a leading role in comedy and i think that's pretty impressive because to there is a lot that plays together but like going from 19 40s screen acting to stage 
has got to be a quite a turn. And you're an older woman to boot, and you're, like, killing it and touring around the country and, like, lean in, girl. You're doing great. <laughs> um, she writes an autobiography in 1987. She gets a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Kennedy Center in, like, 87, 88. And then she gets an Honorary Academy Award in 1991, which apparently was achieved because a lot of people wrote on a petition to get it for her, which I don't think is the norm. Hmm. I think you have to like, I think it's like vote. I don't know. The Academy is weird, but like this, I saw a citing thing of like, we have to give Myrna Loy an Oscar. This is, she's too worth it. She's too amazing. Um, so she got that in 1991 and she was able to receive it via video. Um, she passes away in 1993 at the age of 88 in Manhattan. She had been ill towards the end of her life, but mm. I just love her. I think she's very fascinating to watch. I think she's interesting. I think she's not like the other women of that time. Um, she's kind of like Katherine Hepburn, but sweeter. I don't know. She's like, <laughs> she's very unique. She's very supportive. She's... Um, she does a lot. I just like her. You yeah, should watch all that's her really movies. Cool. I will definitely have to add the thin. That was definitely shorter than the first time I talked about it. Yes. <laughs> thin man. Thin man. There we go. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank all you right. so much, so Katie. That's Myrna Loy. Okay, let's give this a shot. All right, give it a whirl, Um, man. I'm going to start with another story again, and we'll sort of see where that lands us. But I think there's some similarities between my woman and Myrna. We'll see how this goes. So... People tumbled out of a train in the dead of night. The desert air was cold, and specks of sand stung their faces as they gathered their few belongings and marched away from this train terminal. As they approached the camp, large guard towers loomed up in the distance. Men with machine guns were silhouetted by searchlights sweeping the grounds. Passing through the gates, the group split off to their assigned barracks. When they took in the room, about 20 by 25 feet, that they had been assigned, and the army issue cots there, one woman sat down and said, Hmm, a place like this. And that was their introduction to Manzanar. Now, this is not a prisoner of war camp in North Africa. This is about a three-hour drive from Los Angeles in Inyo County, California. And we're going to get to talk this week about internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, including one Sue Embry, who's the woman I want to talk about this week. Uh, So she's born... Um, Sueka Kunitomi in the little Tokyo section of Los Angeles uh, in January 1923. Um, she's a first-generation American. Her parents are both born in Japan. They immigrated to the U.S. And uh, when they named her, so her name translates as youngest child because she was their sixth kid, and they thought that she was going to be their last uh, turns out they're not quite right on that one. Uh, they're going to have two more kids after her. 
Um, so she grows up in a really large family in Los Angeles in the 20s and 30s. She graduates from high school in 1941. Um, her father passed away in 1937 in an accident. Um, so her mother has been running a small grocery store in the neighborhood pretty much single-handedly. And even though Sue has the grades to go off to college, she stays around for a year to help her mom run the store until her sister graduates from high school. And then the plan is she'll work for a year and then head off to college after that. Now, unfortunately, FDR is going to have different plans for her. Um, She's working in the store one day in December 1941 when she hears the news over the radio that the Japanese Air Force and Navy has attacked the U.S. Naval base at Pearl Harbor. Now, as part of the government's response to these attacks, uh, FDR is going to issue Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, so about two months after the Pearl Harbor attack. This order allows the military to establish zones along the West Coast from which, quote, any and all persons may be excluded, end quote. Uh, And sort of like classic 1940s American racism. doesn't really say who these persons are, but it's pretty clear that this is an order aimed primarily at Americans of Japanese descent living on the West Coast. Um, This is including people who are American citizens. And what it ultimately does is authorizes the removal of about 110,000 Japanese Americans from their homes on the West Coast to 10 camps in the sort of western interior of the United States. That makes me so sad. Yeah, it's what we would call a high point in American democracy and freedom. Oh yeah, we're real good at those. Yep. Um, Now, of course, the government is not allowed to hold people without charge uh it's part of your rights as an american citizen so what these camps are called actually becomes like a pretty big point of contention are they internment camps are they concentration camps are they prison camps are they relocation camps Mm -hmm. um the term i always heard when i was learning about this in school was internment camps Mm -hmm. um but of course like what does that mean like What is the legal status of being interned as an American citizen? Well, based on the first time we recorded this podcast, what did we talk about? We talked about how, like, prison camp, if you called it a prison camp, but you held people there without having committed a crime, then maybe you were defying, is it, wait, I don't even know. Let's pick a legal word, habeas corpus or something. I don't know. That is, I think, the right term. Is it that? Oh, my God. It is that. That's a deep dive. That's a file in the way back of the cabinet. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're, like, defying somebody's freedom because they didn't actually do anything. You're just, you're you're punishing maybe an idea, which is not legal in yeah. that way. Um, or in this case, you're just being a violent racist and you have no legs to stand on because... We're not on paper, not in reality, but on paper, we're not a racist country. In reality, we are. I mean, in paper at that time, we probably were too, but because there's no Civil Rights Act yet. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of problems. Anyway, okay, we're rocking it out in the 40s. What's up? 
We're doing it great. And of course, some people notice the same thing that you just noticed there, which is that, hmm, this seems deeply unconstitutional and illegal. And like, maybe we should challenge it in the courts. Um, And then so a couple of people bring suit against the U.S. government. And in one of the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court's shining moments, just like peak Supreme Court moment in the case of Korematsu versus the United States, the Supreme Court up holds that the indefinite detention of American citizens without trial or cause is constitutional. So, you know, just like really doing a great job here. And the thing that I didn't know that I learned about doing research about this is that in the 80s, there was a number of court cases because it turns out, wait for it, U.S. government lawyers deliberately withheld crucial evidence during the cases in the 40s, thereby making them super illegal who is surprised um so what this means for the japanese americans who have been ordered to go to these camps is that they often okay (laughs) just every branch is having fun yeah just like killing it we're killing it yeah um Mm. And so the result then is that the internment policy sort of continues throughout the war. Um, Most Japanese Americans are going to receive less than a week's notice that they had to sell all of their belongings. They were only allowed to take what they could carry with them in one suitcase. And so often what this means is that they try to get relatives or neighbors to look after their homes and businesses, but a lot of them are forced to sell their homes, their businesses, their major belongings on incredibly short notice. And what that means is that they're often sold way under their value or just abandoned and then stolen once they leave. So Sue's family receives their notice that they have to leave in May 1942. Um, They're going to be sent to the Manzanar camp, which is in Central California. Her brother had already been there because the government asked for Japanese Americans to volunteer to help build the camps that they would be imprisoned in. Um, That's good karma for sure. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of going to be the theme for this little bit. So they're Mm -hmm. forced to sell their grocery store in less than a week. Um, They sell it to a Mexican-American family, but they obviously don't sell it for what it's worth because they're on a bit of a deadline. Um, she's going to get to the camp and start working at a camouflage netting factory located nearby. Uh, again, working for the government that is imprisoning her. Uh, but pretty soon she is going to get a job with the newspaper in the camp called the Manzanar Free Press, which is Mm -hmm. deeply ironic. Um, but she'll get her own column called Purely Personal and eventually rises to become the managing editor of the paper. Good. Um, and then looking back on the time, it's sort of this experience that she credits with her political awakening, um, the sort of camp experience broadly, but specifically being a journalist and writing about it while she's there. Um, mm-hmm. In 1943, the government is going to issue a loyalty questionnaire to all of the people living in the camps. And basically, if you answered the right way, you'd be allowed to relocate to areas of the country outside of the West Coast. If you answered the wrong way, you were stuck in the camp until the war was over. What is the right way to answer things? Uh, like, what kind of questions were so they? So the two questions that are sort of the, the touchstones for this um, are basically, 
one of them is declaring your loyalty to the United States government. And the second one, if I'm remembering correctly, is basically like, do you abandon any and all allegiance you might have to the Japanese government or something like that? And the the obviously deeply problematic thing is that question, the frame of that question is, well, you must have some allegiance to the Japanese government. And there's all of these American citizens who have no formal relationship with the Japanese government whatsoever. And they're like, how do I answer this question? I can't renounce an allegiance I never had. But if I say that I do renounce it, that implies that up until the point I renounced it, I did have it. So there's Mm. no winning. And that question actually becomes sort of a huge issue inside the camps with people sort of divided on what's the best way to respond to it. Um, Yeah. But Sue somehow gives the right answers. She's allowed to move to Madison, Wisconsin, where she plans to attend uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. However, she is denied admission because there is war-related research happening on campus. And so the university doesn't want someone of Japanese descent I don't know, be around in case they like stumble on a bomb factory and use their magic powers to communicate back to Japanese military planners. It's very unclear. It's racist. What? It's super racist, but it's also super dumb. So they won't let her go to the university. So that's the reason they gave, but it was nonsense. It's absurd. It's mm. it's ridiculous. Um, and also, this yeah. is Wisconsin, where like a third of the people. I'm just making that number, but like a large number of people in the Midwest are of German heritage and they're still allowed yeah, to go. Right. But like Yeah, but they blend. They do. Uh so in really like peak Wisconsin fashion, she's gonna get a job at a mail order cheese company. Sweet. Which wasn't a thing I knew existed, but now I'm super mm-hmm. curious what nineteen forties mail order cheese tastes like. Probably, probably stale. Yeah. Not... Fresh cheese. I don't know. It's all hard, waxy stuff. You know what I mean? That can ship easily. Mm-hmm. Nothing brie. No brie coming out of there. No, not at all. Um, so after the war, she's going to come back to Los Angeles in 1948. Uh, she's taking care of her mother, who's pretty old at this point. But she is also working for a bunch of leftist political organizations. Uh, including one called the Nisei Progressives. Uh, Nisei is a Japanese term for first-generation immigrants. So it's the group of Mm. Japanese-Americans who are campaigning for Henry Wallace, who's the Progressive Party candidate in 1948. Um, Through this organizing, she's going to meet her husband, Garland Embry, Mm -hmm. and they're going to marry in the same year. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a huge thing because interracial marriages are incredibly taboo at this point in American history or in Mm. certain states they're illegal Um, and interestingly her mom is not particularly happy about it so it's not just Mm. the like the white family Uh, he is a a white man from Texas Um, Mm -hmm. but the little note in her official biography is that the birth of their first child helped heal that wound oh okay can't get mad at a baby. You really can't. Grandchildren seem to be the solution for just about everything. It helps, for sure. It takes a lot of the focus. Yeah. Oh, there's a baby. There's a baby, so we're not going to be worried about racial taboos for the moment. For like a second. Yeah. Um, her husband is going to be a pretty progressive dude for the 50s and 60s. Uh, he is going to split the child-raising 
responsibilities with her so that she can attend Cal State LA part-time. She Whoa! I know. She graduates in 69 with a degree in English. Um, the same year, she's going to make her first trip back to Manzanar. Um, there's this group of younger Japanese Americans um, who are sort of inspired by a lot of the racial consciousness raising movement that's happening in the African American mm. community at this time. And they're interested in building sort of a similar consciousness around this idea of Asian Americanness. So she is going to go back to Manzanar as part of this pilgrimage uh, led by two young um, second generation Japanese Americans, um, Warren Furutani and Victor Shibata. Um, and they're in part using this pilgrimage as a way to bring attention to the sort of Asian American movement, which is just starting to begin now, uh, sort of embracing. But on brand. Yeah, embracing this like mm-hmm. sort of imposed upon them generic Asianness and trying to reclaim it as like an identity to be proud of in a similar way to sort of African American identities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this pilgrimage is a pretty big moment in this movement for a couple of reasons. A big one being that a lot of people who lived in the camps, especially older, um, either first generation immigrants, um, or parents with kids didn't really want to talk about the experiences that much. And so a lot mm-hmm. of people whose parents were in the camps, but who were not old enough to remember or who were not there themselves, grew up not really knowing about it. Um, their parents might sort of make oblique references to the experience, but they wouldn't talk about it openly with them. And so yeah. that's sort of just a first step. It's raising a lot of awareness within the community about this experience. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Sue is actually going to speak pretty publicly with members of the media about it. So again, sort of raising the level of awareness about it. She's going to face backlash from some members within the Japanese American community who really don't want to talk about this issue and who are trying to move past it. But she thinks it's a really important thing to do um, and is actually going to sort of end up taking the lead in what's going to be known as the Manzanar Committee. And that's this mm-hmm. group of um, mostly Japanese Americans who are trying to raise awareness broadly about Japanese internment during World War II, but really specifically trying mm-hmm. to get Manzanar, the camp where she was interned, to be marked as a historic landmark, both as a California mm-hmm. historic landmark and then additionally as a national historic landmark. Um, so they're going to become the ones who organize an annual pilgrimage to the camp, and then they're going to be lobbying both in Sacramento and in D.C. to get it recognized. Um, Now, at the same time that she's doing all of this organizing work, she's also getting her master's in education from USC um, and teaching in the L.A. Unified Mm -hmm. School District. So she has a lot of firsthand knowledge about the absence of information about Japanese internment in the curriculum and is going to work with a group of Asian-American educators to develop curriculums curricula, sorry, um, conduct workshops um, and help make teachers more aware about these issues so that they can better teach the subject to their students. And of course, LA has a huge Asian American population. And so the fact that they're not teaching this is a pretty big, I mean, it's a big red flag. And so the teachers take this on as a point of activism in the 70s as something to focus on. In 1972, the state of California is going to officially recognize Manzanar 
as a state historic landmark. And so the next step for the committee after that is they want it to be made a national park. Um, and so yeah. they're doing all of the lobbying you need to do with that. Um, apparently the, the biggest problem is the LA Department of Water and Power owns the land that the camp is located on. And so they don't want it and sort of raise this specter of well, if we build a national park there, they're going to take away the water for Los Angeles, which, of course, no reasonable person believes, because why would the National Park Service want to take away LA's water? But they're using it as a scare tactic to try to keep control over it. And the really interesting story that um, she tells about the experience is there was also some resistance from locals about the camp um, being recognized. There's stories of the when the state historic landmark sign is put up, people vandalize it, um, they shoot bullets at it, it has to get sort of repainted and put up a couple of times um, mm. in a way sort of similar to some of the plaques or other signage that's gone up around Confederate monuments that some people who are not particularly happy with the idea of more negative attention being brought to their town sort of react against the monuments or the landmarks themselves. Um, but so she's going to organize a trip of Japanese American veterans to go to the towns nearby. Um, they're always wearing their uniforms and they sort of come in and start talking to people. And they realize that most of the people in the town thought it was a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And so they were really confused and a little upset about like, well, why are we memorializing Japanese prisoners of war? And these veterans come in and they're like, oh, no, no, no. These were American citizens. That's why we care about mm. it. Um, and mm. that ends up doing the trick. Um, Congress is going to name it a National Historic Landmark in 85, and it's going to be a National Historic Site in 92. Uh, Congress being Congress, though, they don't actually vote any funding for it for like half a decade. <laughs> so they're like, yep, yeah, we're going to do this, but we're not going to give you any money to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. And so she's going to spend most of... Great idea, great idea. You know, these things, they just happen by themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, so she's going to spend most of the 90s lobbying Congress for funding and then working on the Advisory Commission with the National Park Service to help create what the camp park is going to be. Um, and mm -hmm. if you go now, it's really interesting because it's it sort of takes a mix of the two approaches you could have done. The, they haven't totally rebuilt the camp, but at the same time, they haven't left it totally empty. So they've recreated parts of it, but then left other parts of it sort of deliberately bare. So you can get really a sense of what it would have been like to live there, but at the same time, how desolate a place it is, because it is like in the desert, surrounded by mountains. Yeah. Um, and so they built, they rebuilt a couple of barracks that you can go inside. You can see like the, one of the guard towers where the soldiers were stationed. Um, you can go visit the cemetery that was there um, and sort of get a real sense for like what it was like. And a lot of the historical signage and work around there is about sort of the broader experience of Japanese American internment during World War II. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a really great podcast from 99% Invisible sort of about the making of that park and what that process was like, mm -hmm. um, which I yeah. highly recommend to anyone who's interested in learning more. It is truly excellent. Um, but so Sue does that. 
She's there when the park opens in 2004, one of the big speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to all of that work, she's also really active in labor organizing in Los Angeles um, and sort of fighting for women's rights. She's on the LA uh, Status of Women Commission for a decade. She's going to be a delegate to the mm-hmm. 1980 National Women's Commission Conference and is one of the U.S. delegates to the U.N. Second World Conference on Women. Um, so sort of activism on a local and a national, re- international scale. Um, mm-hmm. And she keeps organizing the annual pilgrimage to Manzanar until she passes away in 2006. Um, and sort of the little interesting capstone to this is in 1988, uh, Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act that offered a mm-hmm. formal apology on behalf of the government um, and paid twenty thousand dollars to each living survivor of the camps. Um, Whoa! Yeah, which was surprising to me. Whoa! But whoa! Right, the, for Reagan first of all, but second of all, the U.S. government admitting fault and then paying what are in effect reparations. Yeah, that's my thought as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting reading now a lot of the sort of literature around the political feasibility of reparations for slavery um a lot of people Mm -hmm. point to this and being like well there's precedent for the government to do this and this is the precedent they're talking about it was really very interesting to learn that ronald reagan may be doing one thing to help us out wow reagan not what i would have expected no definitely a bit of a surprise so that's sue Embry. thanks michael you're welcome katie We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.